Hebrews chapter 7, and we're reading from verse number 11. (coughs) If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, it is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifies, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made a priest, for these priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Now that's our reading. And again, every time uh, I begin to speak about this, I just give a wee brief summary of the overarching idea of the books. It's good to keep that in mind because you can get lost sometimes in the detail of Hebrews and forget the big picture. And the big picture is that Jesus Christ is supreme. The Lord Jesus Christ is superior to everything that went before And how often we've commented that the people who were saved from a Jewish background had given up all the externals and all that appealed to the senses, uh, all the things they could see, the big buildings, the priesthood, the clothes, the sacrifices. They turned their back on that and they'd become Christians and now they had none of that. They had absolutely none of that. They had no fancy buildings, they had no big ceremonies or feasts, they had no physical sacrifices, animal sacrifices they brought, that was all past. But what they did have was the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ is not there. He's not physically there and he's gone back to heaven and so they're trusting in someone that they can't see. They can't physically speak to or touch and their senses can't pick him up at all. So These people were tending to want to go back to what they'd left behind. They were under intense pressure. They were being persecuted. There were some of them who weren't truly Christians, but had come 
pretty far toward becoming a Christian and they too were going back as well, a kind of mixed multitude if you like. So this whole book is written to that type of person and it's written to show that what they've come to in the Lord Jesus Christ, although not tangible, visible in that sense, is far superior to everything they left behind, which was in fact pointing towards (laughs) the Lord Jesus in the first place. So he's been seen to be superior to angels. He's been superior to Moses, and they really thought highly of Moses. Superior to Joshua, who led them as a nation into the promised land. And the final biggest superiority that we see, really, in this section, is that he's superior to the priesthood that was so important in the national life of a Jew, of an Israelite. He, the priests were such a big part of their life and their relationship with God. They brought sacrifices to the priest who represented them before God. The priests were involved in all their ceremonies. They were the mediators, really, between them and God himself, the go-betweens. And so they were a big, significant part of life. And the Lord Jesus Christ here is taught as being superior to all the priesthood, even the first great priest. Aaron himself and the priests right down through the tribe of Levi eventually. So we've been introducing our studies to Christ and he's been shown to be our great high priest. Personally, even though he's not here and we can't see him and we can't speak to him physically, he's in heaven, he is interceding for us, he is ministering in our behalf presently and the writer said, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, who's been here, the Son of God, who knows all about being there. And so he's the perfect mediator, the perfect go-between, because he's been here and now he's in the presence of God himself. One writer put it this way. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we read about Christ being a mediator of a better covenant, a better hope, with better promises, a better sacrifice, with better substance, a better country, better resurrection. A country which is not earthly, but heavenly. A heavenly calling, a heavenly gift, a heavenly country, a heavenly Jerusalem. In fact, you can go right through, and it's all heavenly, not earthly, and it's all better. And the key to all of this, we're going to see, and the security and certainty of our salvation, is the priesthood of Christ. And that was so significant to these believers as they had left behind the physical and the tangible. Now, in the first 10 verses of this chapter, we're introduced to this big truth that Christ is a priest, but he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we were introduced to this man, Melchizedek, from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis. We learned about him and his relationship with Abraham. And we learned that he is a lovely picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, they were not told about his birth, we're not told about his death, so he's a picture about the eternal character of Christ, no beginning of days, no end of life. And we are shown that he was superior to Abraham because of the tithe giving between Abraham and Melchizedek. And we're going to see that it was always God's purpose that the priesthood of the Old Testament, along with the whole system of the Old Testament, would pass away. It was temporary. It was not designed to be forever. And Aaron and his priests who served the nation of Israel, who had become such a key part 
of all of that, they were always going to be superseded by the Messiah. It's just Hebrews 7, verse 11 down that we're in. The Lord hath sworn in Psalm 110, verse 4, and will not repent. So this is back in the book of Psalms. The Lord has sworn and will not repent, and this is about Messiah, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So it was always God's intention, always God's plan. And it's a mistake to think that when you read in the Old Testament, you're reading about a system and you're reading about priests and offerings and sacrifices and all of these ceremonies and all of these feasts as if that was the end game. It's not the end game. It was preparatory temporary in light of the coming of Christ. Now we come to this chapter. I'm going to move fairly quickly through it um, because some of it is repeating some of the same truths but from different angles. But what we want to see first of all from verse 11 is this question. If the priesthood of the Old Testament, Aaron's priesthood, was sufficient, who then would need a priest after the order of Melchizedek? That's what it says in verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, that's the Old Testament, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Simple logic. They're saying, oh, we're hankering back for that great high, that high priest and all of these priests and the temple and the system and the sacrifices. And the writer says, listen, if that met all of your needs, then it would never be superseded by something else. So there must have been something deficient about it, temporary, transitory, or it would not have been replaced. It needed to be replaced. It's a logical flow of thought. And the logical flow of thought from verse 11 down to verse 19 is summarized in verse 19. And the point is in verse 19. Here's the end of that little section. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. There it is. Under the new covenant, the new system, we are able, us, to draw nigh unto God. In the Old Testament, they couldn't do that to stay away but not now in the new we have been brought nigh unto God and that is why the new is better than the old we have such privilege now we're going to point out a few words in this section that I hope will help explain it first of all the word perfection perfection if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood now When you read in the New Testament that word perfect or perfection or perfected used by the Apostle Paul in his his writings, it usually has to do with spiritual maturity, completeness, perfect. But in the book of Hebrews, it's used in a different way. And it's important to draw the distinction between them. In the book of Hebrews, it's used to refer to the ultimate aim of Christianity, which is access, full, unrestricted access into the very presence of God, now and forever. So it's a different meaning used in both uh, sections of the New Testament, and it's important to draw the distinction. Paul often speaks about us as Christians maturing and God's ultimate purpose is that we would be like Christ in his character and he speaks about that as perfection. 
But in Hebrews, he's speaking about this idea of being brought nigh unto God, into the very presence of God, having access to God as being the ultimate aim of our salvation, to be with God for all eternity. What a tremendous thing. That truly is perfection. It's God's redemptive purpose complete. Sin that separated us from God in the garden, gone, dealt with once and for all, and nothing to restrict our intimacy and access with God. You see, in the Old Testament, if you walked into the place where God had placed his name and said he was present, and you just strolled in there, you would suffer the consequences. Uzziah, in the book of Isaiah, he as a king thought he would act as a priest and he kind of strolled in nonchalantly with a sacrifice into the presence of God and was struck down with leprosy. You see, even Adam couldn't go back into the Garden of Eden once sin came in. There was, there was these angelic beings and they guarded the way with flaming swords. You see, it was to demonstrate you can't get access into the presence of God now because of sin. And even in the Old Testament, the very presence of God, which was that holiest of all in the middle of the tabernacle, you remember, you couldn't just stroll in there. Even if you're a priest, you couldn't stroll in there. It was only the high priest once a year who could go in and even then he had to take in sacrifice for his own sin before he could go in and he could mediate on behalf of the people. You see, there was restricted access into the presence of God. But you know, that's all gone. What happened when Christ died? The veil of the temple, that which was a barrier between symbolically between men and God, was cut in two from the top to the bottom. It came from heaven, and heaven divided it and separated it and said, listen, the way's open. Hebrew writer says, through the veil, that is to say his flesh, Christ has opened the way. Christ is the way. And through him we can have unfettered, unrestricted access to God himself even while we're here upon earth. And so spiritually, we can get right into the throne room of heaven at any time, anywhere, without any fear of consequence. And the ultimate, the perfection that God is going to bring to us as his people is that we will be transformed and we will be with Christ and we will be in the immediate presence of God for all eternity. And we will not be consumed by the divine fire of the holiness of his presence you see we are because of our sin we're combustible that's true you go into the holiness of god with sinful flesh and you're combustible but when sin has been purged from us once and for all even in our bodies we will be able to be right into the very atmosphere of the pure holiness of god and we will be without sin it's the perfection of Hebrews. Listen to 10, chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Listen again to chapter 6 and verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, the Old Testament, let us go unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He said, leave the stuff of the Old Testament behind and get yourself into the truth of the New Testament for therein lies perfection, access, intimacy with God. Again, chapter 10, verse 1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offer year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect 
You see, all of these animal sacrifices that they brought didn't mean that they could go into the presence of God unhindered. It didn't matter how many times they offered sin offering, trespass offering, peace offering. You know, it didn't matter. It didn't matter whether there was offerings of sweet savour or non-sweet savour, wood offerings, drink offerings. It didn't matter if they stood outside in the Day of Atonement year after year. All of that bloodshed could not give them what Christ gives us in the New Testament, which is complete access and intimacy with God. And so he says in verse 11, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, why has God raised up another priest after a different order to do what these priests could not do? It's logical. If we had complete access through the old, God wouldn't have required to bring in the new. So why go back to the old? And why not stick with the new? That's the logic of the statement. Now notice verse 12. So he says, for the priesthood being changed, old to new, Aaronic, Levitical, to Christ, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Now, that word changed, for the priesthood being changed. Now, let's get a wee bit more technical here because this is important. It means to replace something. Not to do so in addition to something, but as a replacement of something. So, these walls are going to be painted in due course. And I imagine that they will simply, the paint will go on top of the paint that's already there. They're not going to be stripped back don't think. Not going to be stripped right back. It will just be paint on top of paint. And so that's one idea of change. And so the colour of the walls are going to be changed, but underneath the new colour will look the old colour. But you see, this word is different from that. This is not changed by addition on top of something, thereby changing it. It is actually complete replacement. And it's important that when you look at this, you see it in that view because they were not. They were seeing the new as just being an expansion of the old, an addition to the old, not something completely different. And so he says here that there needs to be made of necessity a change of the law. Now, what does this mean? This is not the whole law of God its entirety. For after all, Romans chapter 7 tells us that the law is holy, just, and good. But it's the ceremonial aspect of the Old Testament mosaic system of sacrifices, which was the expression of God's moral character and code for that ancient people. And so that has to go. The system in place for Israel has to go. Sacrifices, offering, feast, ceremony, symbols, all have to go because they have been, what, replaced. They've been replaced by the sacrifice of Christ. They've been replaced by the suffering of Christ. And this was a big problem in the early days of the church. Have you ever heard of Judaizers? You know, when folks speak to your ministry and speak about Judaizers, Judaizers were people who had a Jewish background And what they wanted to do was take the Christians and they wanted to tell the Christians this. You need to take the things of the Old Testament and keep practicing them. 
and bolt on top of that the things of the New Testament and make it into one thing. Which seems reasonable, but not when you realise that the new replaced the old. Not added to it, but replaced. So that, for example, people were saying, oh, listen, you must keep the Sabbath day. In the Old Testament, they had to keep the Sabbath day, and it was a big deal. And so in the New Testament, you need to keep the Sabbath day. You can't stop doing that. You've got to just add Christianity on top of the Sabbath day. And then they began to add all sorts of rules and regulations, and even things like <laughs> circumcision, which we're all glad has been taken away. But you've got this whole idea of things being bolted on new and top of old. And actually, it caused great problems. And so we need to understand that the word change means replaced. And when Christ, as his priesthood and his sacrifice and all the rest of it, replaces the old, it removes all the old ceremonial system as well. The church is not just a new version of Israel. It's not that you take the word Israel and the word church and you just interchange them both. That doesn't work in the Bible. It leads you into all sorts of confusion and error, actually. And so he says in verse number 13, and he's just going to show this, and this is where he repeats himself a wee bit, and he's going to show that Messiah, Christ, was from Judah and not Levi. So he's getting a wee bit technical, and he's speaking about these Old Testament priests, and he's explaining that the Lord Jesus Christ could not just be added on to what went before, because actually what went before meant he could never be a priest at all. You had to be of a certain lineage, you had to come from a certain tribe, and he didn't. He came from Judah, not from Levi, certainly not from Aaron. And so if you weren't from Levi, you didn't need to go near the altar or get involved in any of that, according to verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. Verse 14, it's evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, not out of Levi. So, again, just follow the logic. If you're saying the old still has to be practiced, then Christ could never be a priest at all because he didn't come from Levi. And the Old Testament was very specific. You'd better not be around that altar trying to be a priest unless you had the right lineage and background. And Christ did not. That's why he came from Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. So he must come out of a different order. And we've seen in verse number 15, that's evident, for after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arose another priest. Now, you don't listen to Bible teaching very often, especially if you're brought up with it, until you hear this. In the Bible, the word another, in English, is one word. But in the Greek version of the New Testament, the original, there are two words for another, at least two. Another of the same kind and another of a different kind. Okay, so that becomes part of your common language. If you listen to this often enough, heteros means another of a different kind, and that's the word here. You can use that word another of the same kind. You can say there's another car coming down, and you mean there's another car which is similar to the one that's just gone. Or you can say there's another car coming down and you mean it's a different one. Um, so we use the word interchangeably. There are two words in the Bible for that. And so Christ is another priest, but he's another of a different kind. He's not Levitical, he's different. And by the way, that word ariseth, let's get a wee bit more technical, means, according to the grammar, to arise by himself. Okay, so it's middle voice. 
He was not brought up by another. He arose by himself. And no ironic priest could ever have that said of himself. They were priests because of their right of birth and their lineage and all the rest of it. And they were born that way. And none of them could say that they arose themselves. But it's true of Christ. Now down to verse 16. We won't linger with these verses unless we get bogged down. (coughs) So if Christ is a priest after a different type of law, the old aspect of all the ceremonies gone, well then what type of law is he a priest after? Verse 16 tells us. Who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. If you were going to be a priest in the Old Testament, and by the way, that word law just means a norm, a standard. The word commandment there means a specific precept, and carnal just means fleshly. And so there was a standard prescribed by the Mosaic commandments which had to do with the human body. If you're going to be a priest. Now I was looking at this. Now to be a priest in the Old Testament, you first of all had to be a pure descendant of Aaron. And by the way, there was 142 physical blemishes that could disqualify you. 142 physical blemishes. I'm just looking around. That means that none of us would ever make it. It's just obvious. And so you'd have to be a fairly perfect physical specimen by all sounds. Leviticus 21 gives you some of these. Leviticus 8, it's got a big ordination ceremony. And you'd go through a whole lot of stuff. You'd have four priestly garments. You'd linen knee breeches. You'd a long linen garment, a girdle, and you'd a kind of turban thing. And um, anointed with oil, dab of the sacrificial blood on the tip of his right ear, his right thumb, his right big toe. Once he'd been ordained, he'd go through certain procedures and to be a high priest. And you get this whole thing. And do you know what it's all about? It's all about the body. It's all about what's physical. Physical imperfections. There's actually nothing here about his character. He was born into the right family. He to physically represent the right thing. And... His ordination was all external. It was all about wearing clothes. It was all about things being applied to him and stuff. It was all about the purification of the flesh. That's why in Hebrews 9, it says this, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience? So one's got to do with the flesh and one's got to do with the conscience. And this is the new law, from dead works to serve the living God. What's the new law? Christ was not made a high priest because of the external physical things or ceremonies. But rather it says that he was made a high priest, not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Endless just means what cannot be dissolved or disunited. So the Messiah is constituted a priest according to the power of an indissoluble life. The life which was his could not be broken down, could not come to an end. One writer says, in the case of the high priest after the order of Melchizedek Christ, he performed and performs his duties as our great high priest, not by reason of the fact that any official Necessity was laid upon him, but by virtue of a power in his own nature compelling and enabling him, the power of a life that even death could not dissolve, for he raised himself from the dead. Even death could not stop this. 
And it says in verse 17, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But here's, here's the encouragement and all that kind of technical stuff. Scripture is telling us that our great high priest, forget the old, forget that which was uh, deficient because it was temporary. And think about that which God brought in in Christ and which we are the beneficiaries of. Christ has taken us, when we are saved, into the very presence of God and anchored us there and keeps us there. And the confidence is this, he does so by the power of an indestructible life. And he anchors us there eternally because as long as he is alive, spiritually, we are alive too. His life means our life. Because he can never die, we will never die, spiritually. Because he can never have his high priesthood stopped, then we will never be evicted from heaven, ever. And it's one of the great truths of the perpetual priesthood of Christ that it secures us eternally in our salvation. You know, there's so much about the high priesthood of Christ that I think just kind of over the head that, you know, when you think about it or don't think about it, do you know, he's ministering on our behalf when we're asleep and when we're awake and when we care and when we don't care and when we're engaged with him and not engaged with him. He just all the time never lets us slip. He's never, our salvation is never under any threat because of this. He's not like the high priest of old that had to come in and out of the presence of God every year. And there was always the possibility that he wouldn't come back out. That's why, by the way, the bells and the pomegranates round about those garments. Because when they could hear the bells and pomegranates, they knew he was coming out. The sacrifice had been accepted. The, the, the sins and iniquities of the nation had been dealt with for another year. They were saved only for a year. <coughs> only for a year. And then the high priest had to get himself back in there again. And then again. And every year back in. Not so Christ. You see, he doesn't come and go. He's there. And our salvation is secure because of it. So he summarizes this verse 18 and 19 and says, For there is, very, there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before because of its weakness and its unprofitableness. It's been done away with. Don't hanker back to it. And as us Christians who don't come from a Jewish background, there's obviously not the same attraction to go back to that because we've never experienced it. But you know what that represented? We can be attracted to that kind of stuff, that which is external and fleshly and that which appeals to the senses. And we can perhaps think that the intangible, invisible life of faith is somehow less. But it's not less. It's far more. It's the real thing. One writer said, the old system could only reveal our sin. It could never remove our sin. It could give a relative measure of drawing near to God, but not full perfection. It could never bring God's redemptive purposes to a conclusion. But the priesthood of Jesus Christ made all that Israel pictured and looked forward to a reality. Full, eternal access to God. For sinners just like us.
something that if you were an Israelite or a Levite, if you were a priest, if you were even a high priest, you would have found staggering. Staggering. In verse 19, he just summarizes it all, and I said this was the key expression for the first section. For the law made nothing perfect. There's our word again. But the bringing in of a better hope did. By the which we draw nigh unto God. So drawing nigh unto God is defined there as being the perfection he speaks about, access to God. Now, come down now to verse number 20 and down into verse 28. So this is the second section of the chapter, and we'll go quickly through this as well. Because again, he's going to emphasise some of the things we've already been speaking about. And he's going to emphasise that the Lord Jesus Christ is the absolute guarantee of all of this. He's the guarantee. Now drop verse 21 out because, well in my version of the Bible it's in brackets. I was going to say, do you know what that means? I've got a word for that, parenthesis. And it just means, one day what does it mean? It just means that you can read down the passage, you can stop at the bracket, and you can pick up at the bracket again, and you don't lose the flow of thought. So you just can take the stuff inside the brackets out, and the sentence still makes sense. So that, if you do that, then it reads as follows. Inasmuch as not without an oath he was made a priest, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Now he's going to speak about oaths here. In other words, he is the absolute guarantee of this new testament, all that I've been speaking about, because of the oath of God in relation to his priesthood. Now he's going to take a few verses to explain that, and I don't think I'll go into them, but it's, that's what he's saying. That's the point he's making. And he's making a point that when Levitical priests were inducted into office, they were not inducted by the oath of God. But that's not the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord swear and will not repent without a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's become a surety, a guarantee of a better covenant because he is a better priest. Then you come to this little expression down into verse number uh, 24. And he's going to emphasize the everlasting eternal character of Christ and his priesthood. And some of these verses would be quite familiar to us, but this is the context in which they appear. Sometimes they're taken out of this context. But this is the context. And so the key expression from here on down is in verse 25. He is able also to save them to the uttermost. That's the key expression. Now, I've made that point already. Christ is the absolute guarantee that we will not be lost forever. And this emphasizes that great truth. So he says, first of all, in verse number um, 23, notice he says, look, there were lots of priests in the Old Testament and they all died. So they you know, there was a natural succession. They couldn't live forever, so the priesthood finished when they died. But he says the contrast with Christ is in verse 24, because he continueth ever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. And because he is not going to die, his priesthood is unbroken. Look at verse 25, wherefore. So because he will live forever, never dies, he is able to save to the uttermost. That's the flow of thought. Now, this word save, what does this word save mean? (coughs) 
So he can save in the fullest sense. Now, again, it's good to remember this, that when the Bible speaks about being saved, it would speak about it in three different ways, at least. Past, present, and future. Past tense has to do with deliverance from the guilt of sin. Then he speaks about the present, often, Scripture does, which means deliverance from the power of sin, presently, as Christians. And then he speaks about salvation in the future tense as deliverance from the very presence of sin. We've been thinking about that in heaven. So the guilt of sin, the penalty, if you like, and just to get the three Ps, the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. The first was done at the cross. That's where the work was done to deliver us from the guilt and penalty of sin. The second is done at the throne of grace, which is the intercessory work of Christ, the high priestly work of Christ, to deliver us presently from the power of sin. And the third will be done at his coming. When he comes to the air and when the dead in Christ rise and when those of us who are alive and remain are caught up and we're changed, raised and changed. And then these bodies of humiliation will give way to bodies of glory. That is the bodies which are the place of our humiliation today will then be the bodies where we are suited for and experience the glory of God. And we will have nothing to do with sin and the presence of sin from then on. By the way, all three of these are contained in two verses in Titus chapter 2. Just be you taking notes. Listen to this. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation, there's our word, hath appeared to all men. Okay, so that's the past tense. Presently. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Present. Next verse. Future. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Past, present, future. All to do with salvation. He is able to save in the past. He's able to save in the present. He's able to save in the future. Because Why? He lives in the power of an endless life. That's what our verse tells us. So what does it mean to the uttermost? They used to preach to the guttermost, and the idea would be that he could save anyone, even the worst. Well, that is actually true, but I'm not sure that's really what it means here. It means that he will bring us to full salvation and that he will hold us there forevermore. Two ideas, the comprehensive character of sin and the eternal salvation and the eternal character of salvation. Salvation is complete and salvation is forever, to the uttermost. <coughs> we might say to the nth degree, being a scientist, we might say that, I'm not a scientist. But come unto God by him, so he's able to save all, but all aren't saved. All aren't saved. Why are all not saved? John 5 verse 40, the Lord said, you will not come. You will not come that you might have life. And so there is a responsibility on everyone to come to Christ for salvation. Let's not forget it. The whosoever of the gospel is so important. 
And yes, there is the balance of divine sovereignty, but let us not forget this balance of human responsibility and accountability that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He secures us by his perpetual life in the glory. He said, because I live, ye shall live also. That's it. So if someone says to you, why are you absolutely certain that you're going to be in heaven forever? Because I'm absolutely certain that Christ is going to be there forever. That's my claim. He said, where I am, there ye shall be also. And it's as simple as that. His salvation is secured, our salvation is secured in him. And he rose from the dead, never to die again. And because of that, our salvation is secure. And what a high priest he is. It's as if he just gets carried away now and he begins to speak about the uniqueness of Christ. Not only in his unfinishing priesthood, but look, for such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. What a contrast to everyone that went before. He's holy, the, priest, the high priest in the Old Testament, well, you know, they had a kind of temporary borrowed holiness, but not here. And by the way, there's two words for holy in the Bible, um, in the Greek, and this is the one that's used least of all. Usually the word, Jeremy can correct me if I'm wrong here, hagios, remember haggis, well, it's nearly like haggis, it's hagios. <laughs> And it's just one G, and it means to be saintly, to be holy, to be separated unto God. That's the normal word we normally use. This is a different word. I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. And it refers to holiness of character. Uh, he's both holy in character and he's holy in service. Both. He's holy in himself and he's holy in what he does. He's harmless. That was true when he was in, on earth. He went about doing good. Always living for others. He's undefiled, free from blemish and defilement. I don't know about the 140 odd physical blemishes, but morally undefiled, untouched by sin and Satan. Touched the leper. It was the leper that became clean, not him that became defiled. He touched death, and death was transformed into life. He communicated life to the death. The dead did not communicate death to him. You see, with us, often it's that way. When we touch sin, sin actually destroys us. When he touched sin, he destroyed the sin. Not the other way about. Because he is intrinsically pure and holy, and he cannot be defiled. He cannot be. He's separate from sinners. We would just say he's in a different class. In a different class. You know, you go on a plane, and inevitably you turn right, and Tom, he turns left. <laughs> different class, you see. And Christ is a different class. Far more than that kind of silly wee illustration. He's literally just separate from sinners. Different class. And so he finishes up this, and we'll just summarise it. Because he's a different class because he's the only high priest that's ever been. He's our great high priest. And I noted, and I can't remember um, if I've kept the note, I noted how many high priests, one of the writers said there were, between Aaron and Christ. I don't think I kept the note. I think it was about 80 or something like that. Um, but none of them was like Christ. 
None of them. And the reason was they had to offer for their own sins. He didn't have any. And so the law makes men high priests which have infirmities. But the word of the oath that God made, they are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, made the son who's consecrated. Here it is forevermore. So that is a wee bit complicated, but there are wonderful themes that just run right through that of great assurance and great power for us as Christians. Don't worry about your salvation being lost. Don't worry about being lost yourself. It doesn't depend on you at all. It depends wholly on the one you trust. And it's not the size of your faith. It's the fact that your faith is living. That, by the way, is why he said, if your faith, like a grain of mustard seed and not like a speck of dust, there's no life in dust. And so a grain of mustard seed, it's tiny, but there's life in it. And it's not to do with the size of it, it's to do with the fact that it's living. And our faith, living faith, in this saviour, the fact that he lives in the power of an endless life means this. It's not so much that I could lose my salvation. He will never lose us. Never. Because he lives forevermore. So don't be afraid of losing your salvation. That doesn't mean you're careless as a Christian, but it does give great assurance when you have doubts and fears and anxieties and you wake up one day and you wonder, is this real? Is it genuine? We've all had days like that. I mean, is this real? Is there a God? I, I mean, is this all worthwhile? Just remember this, even in these days, he's still holding on to you. And you're still absolutely secure in his presence. Trust that these things will be an encouragement to us. And if you read Hebrews 7 again, then hopefully you'll pick up these themes as you go down the chapter in your own.